They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back. This is Strict Scrutiny, a podcast so fierce, it's fatal in fact. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Kate Shaw. And we are your co-hosts today. We are without Jamie and Leah, but fear not, we are with a full slate of fantastic Supreme Court news and court culture. What do we have on deck today, Kate? Okay, so we're going to start with some breaking news, uh, both inside and a little bit outside the court. We will then preview the January sitting. Um, A few cases, there are a bunch on deck for January, so we're going to preview just a subset of them, and we're going to end with some court culture, specifically justices in the wild. Ooh, excitement. So for breaking news, our first bit of breaking news is about an update to the Equal Rights Amendment. So as many of you know, Virginia seems poised to become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And if that's the case, it would be the last state needed to ratify the amendment. So for those of you who aren't familiar, the Equal Rights Amendment had its real push in the 1970s. um, And then it kind of faltered amidst a huge campaign propagated by American housewife Phyllis Schafly. There's about to be a new movie with Kate Blanchett playing Schafly. But in any event, the ERA had a clause in it that the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states would ratify the amendment within seven years from the date of its submission by the Congress. And then they set that deadline as 1979. In 1978, Congress extended the deadline by three years with support from President Jimmy Carter. Carter was not constitutionally required to lend his support, but he did so as a symbolic matter. Nevertheless, the ERA failed to get support from the requisite number of states to be ratified as an amendment. But in recent years, that kind of interest in the ERA has been revived, and advocates have revived the effort to ratify the amendment, saying that Congress could either retroactively cancel the deadline or that the original deadline itself was invalid. However, here's the wrinkle. The DOJ has weighed in, and it disagrees. In a memo that was posted on January 8th, Assistant Attorney General Stephen Engel wrote that Congress is required that the ERA resolution be ratified within a fixed period. And whether the effective deadline was in 1979 or 1982, that time has come and gone. The memo takes the position that there is only one clearly legal way for the ERA to continue, to have Congress restart the process by reproposing the amendment to the states. Um, It does consider the possibility that had been previously endorsed by the Office of Legal Counsel in the 1980s that ratification could remain open if both the House and the Senate approved a joint resolution removing the original deadline, but it also suggests that it is extremely skeptical of that being a legal alternative. So with the Trump administration on one side and the state-level advocacy 
advocates on the other, we are shaping up for a pretty big fight about whether the ERA can go forward. And, you know, there's a question. So the Office of Legal Counsel is obviously not the final word on the permissibility of this route to ratification. Um, So I think there are questions. One, arguably it is Congress and not the Office of Legal Counsel that has the final word um, as to the mechanism of ratification. But it is also the case that you could imagine a court being asked to provide a definitive resolution. And so there I think the question is how this dispute could get before a court in the first place, right? Does does the attorney general of a ratifying state bring a suit? Does Which has p- happened in the past. Sure. Does a plaintiff who's been discriminated against file a claim under the 28th Amendment, which she claims has been properly ratified? So the reason this is before the OLC is because the archivist of the United States has asked the OLC to weigh in because the archivist has this kind of ministerial role of certifying an amendment for inclusion in the Constitution once it's been ratified. So I do think the archivist will abide by the ruling of OLC. Uh, but as you suggested, this is a fight that this is not in any way the final word on. All right. Stay tuned. Um, okay. So other breaking news, um, some impeachment updates. So um, <laughs> Wait, wait. St- are there impeachment updates? You know, so we're recording on Friday. We're going to drop this episode on Monday. So the landscape could have shifted. Um, I think it seems for the moment as though we are moving toward a trial in the Senate in the next week or two. Um, so as folks probably know, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi decided to tap the brakes a little bit after the full House approved articles of impeachment. Um, and it seemed as though she had done that, hoping to get some leverage in order to get Mitch McConnell to agree to some conditions for the trial, in particular, the appearance of witnesses. Um, it doesn't seem as though any such agreement is forthcoming, at least at this stage. Although John Bolton came out of nowhere saying that he wouldn't mind testifying if he were subpoenaed. Right. By the Senate, right? Very specifically. <laughs> didn't, you know, sort of implicitly seem to suggest he would be less receptive to such an invitation or subpoena from the House. Um, but it does in some ways vindicate Pelosi's slow walking effort. If both additional facts emerge and potential addi- additional witnesses come forward, it suggests that this delay has some value for her. Uh, and and yet I think that as the days drag on without any major further developments, her members seem to be getting a little restive, right? It seems as though there is increasing pressure to simply send those articles over to the Senate so the trial can begin. So I think that's likely to happen so very what, soon. What do they have to do besides sending over the articles? What else does the House have to do? So importantly, they need to appoint impeachment manager. So those are like the prosecutors who actually try the case before the Senate, which sits as judges and jurors. Mm-hmm. Um, and historically, that's been a group of House members. I think there were seven in the Johnson impeachment and maybe 13 in the Clinton impeachment. Lindsey Graham was, was a one, manager. Yeah, he was one of the managers. The so they were all drawn from the Judiciary Committee back in 99. I think very likely some will come from Intel, at least. Schiff, Schiff sure. seems like he's going to yeah. be in the mix. And then, you know, it seemed as though at least in December, there was some talk of potentially Justin Amash, the only independent mm-hmm. who joined the Democrats to approve the articles of impeachment, whether including him on the team of managers might lend some, lend some sort of bipartisan uh, feel to the process. What's the over and under on Val Deming? So she had an incredibly impressive showing um, in the impeachment debates and hearings, but she's not a lawyer. It's typically lawyers, but that's certainly not required. So, And I imagine that the speaker is going to want a diverse coalition, and yeah. I think that she was impressive. So I don't know if she's angling for it. You know, like I think this is a very political process behind the scenes, and a lot of members are appealing to Pelosi. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it depends on – and I think that there's benefits politically to some of them to this very high-profile role. Yes. But I think that some from swing districts probably have want no, no interest in this. being yeah. sort of visible and present. Yeah. So um, I think it's a complicated decision. But in any event, she's likely to make that decision next week, and the trial – 
could start, you know, the next day. So who will be the president's lawyers? That's a great question. I mean, I think we know that White House counsel Pat Cipollone is going to play a major role. And Jay Sekulow, longtime lawyer of the president, has suggested he too will be involved. Well, Rudy Giuliani, also a personal lawyer of the president. That is a big question. He has certainly suggested he's interested in playing some role. Um, I got to believe at the end of the day that Cipollone is going to prevail upon the president, that it is not to his benefit to have Rudy Giuliani. That would be such a reality TV show. <laughs> right. Which <laughs> obviously is the president. That's the president's sort of origins. And he is, you know, he's a creature of reality TV. So that is not necessarily a demerit in his estimation, I imagine. And I'm sure he cares about the ratings of this thing. And it is certainly true that Rudy Giuliani would get good ratings. Oh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I should say the one little historical tidbit I will offer is that Andrew Johnson, the first president to be impeached and tried, had this just insane defense team. So he had a former Supreme Court justice. He had two former attorneys general. He had two of the most esteemed private lawyers in the country. I don't think we're looking at that caliber of legal team representing the president in this trial. Kate, with a little bit of shade. <laughs> Put your umbrella down, Kate. <laughs> Onward. <laughs> So there are also some updates and some pending cases before the court, specifically June Medical Services versus G. This is that abortion case from Louisiana that we've talked about in earlier episodes. It has been set for a March 4th oral argument, and briefs in support of Louisiana's admitting privileges law are now in. We will do a deep dive on the case after oral argument, so let's just flag a couple of things now. The Solicitor General's brief is in, and it argues in support of Louisiana that the law should be upheld. Curiously, there is no federal law involved here. So the SG really doesn't have to be in on this case, but it has filed a brief. And that itself is not necessarily surprising. The Obama Solicitor General's office filed a brief and argued on the side of Whole Women's Health, the abortion clinic, in the predecessor case, um, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. So in that brief, um, the Solicitor General, um, arguing on behalf of the Louisiana position, argues that the doctors and the clinics that brought this case lack standing, that there can be no third party standing in a case like this. First, we have talked before about this third-party standing question. This is a really interesting development in this case. The court itself added in this question about third-party standing. Louisiana had not pressed it below. Um, The Solicitor General cites only one mention of the doctors having standing in that was in the Fifth Circuit opinion. It says the physicians' plaintiffs have standing to assert the rights of their prospective plaintiffs, patients, excuse me. And it says that that's enough um, to raise this question. I don't know. Seems a little thin and sketchy. But again, the court was really keen to present this issue. And the Solicitor General's office looks like it's ready to dance. And again, it goes to, I think, the merits of the question of whether these kinds of regulations on abortion actually benefit the patients and whether doctors are part of that calculus. Uh, The case itself is going to be focused on what the extent abortion precedents whole women's health, Casey, mean. And the Solicitor General's brief goes right into that, arguing that the Louisiana law at issue here is distinguishable from the Texas law that was struck down in whole women's health. Um, They're very similar to each other, but the Solicitor General's position is that they are distinguishable. And if the court concludes they are not distinguishable, Uh, The Solicitor General has argued that whole women's health should be narrowed in its ruling or alternatively overruled entirely. But it doesn't say anything that would urge the court to go further to also narrow or overrule Casey or Roe. 
Um, there is also an extremely um, testy, I think you'd call it, Kate <laughs> brief from June Medical Services suggesting that the state, Louisiana, is relying on extra record evidence um, in its arguments and that it should be required to file a new brief redacting all of that additional material. Yeah, and, and we should say, right, that's Louisiana's merits brief in this case cites a lot of evidence from what it calls a supplemental brief and then drops a footnote saying, at the same time as we're filing this brief, we're filing a request to lodge this supplemental <laughs> appendix. But it has included a lot of material from this yeah. appendix in its brief. So that's now there before the justices. And that's very unorthodox. Some of the things it offers as facts in this supplemental appendix are haven't, hotly contested. And haven't been vetted. Haven't been vetted. Yeah. The court does not sit to resolve in the first instance disputed facts. And June Medical Services seems to be attempting to save the court from this unorthodox and excessive labor of resolving these disputed questions at the merit stage before the Supreme Court. And so they're saying there should be a, they should be required, Louisiana should, to file a new and redacted brief, or at the very least, um, June Medical Services should get to file its own response to some of these yeah. hotly contested claims. So it could get messy in the filings even before this is this case is before the court for oral argument. All right. So that's a terrific um, bridge to the next point. Um, there's another brief in this case that should draw your attention. And this is a brief from 207 members of Congress. And they are represented, interestingly enough, by the group Americans United for Life, which interestingly helped to draft the law that is challenged here and indeed have drafted a lot the of the laws. Law and all that, these laws that look just like this. Yeah. Right. So they draft a lot of these laws as model legislation that can then be enacted by various states. Um, but they are representing these 207 members of Congress, 205 Republicans plus Dan Lipinski of Illinois and Colin Peterson of Minnesota, who are sort of blue dog Democrats. The Americans United for Life has also filed its own amicus brief. So I don't know if this is technically double dipping, but they're definitely all in here. But this brief from the 207 members of Congress says that Roe and Casey should be reconsidered and overruled. So not as nuanced as the SG's brief, but very focused on getting to what they see as the end game, getting rid of these precedents entirely. And it's not necessarily um, the typical thing for Congress to weigh in on a Supreme Court case, although Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island and Maisie Hirono of Hawaii also joined together with some members of Congress to file a brief in NYSERPA, the Second Circuit gun case that we talked about earlier this year. So there is precedent for it, but it's typically not done. I think it's increasingly done. You know, I, I'd be curious. This is a great maybe note topic. If, this is a if, great yeah, note topic. If someone's looking, because I do think that that there have been these briefs periodically. It seems to me as though there's been an uptick in mm -hmm. frequency, um, but I haven't seen any actual empirics on it. So in Windsor, were there was there a brief of the the congressman because like they were also representing well they yeah, there was this entity called blag the blag. bipartisan legal advisory group so they were parties to the case was there yeah. a separate amicus brief that remember. other members filed i don't remember either okay. but but certainly there have been plenty of cases in the last decade that have involved amicus briefs by members this would, this would sides. be a terrific note topic for yeah. a second year law student so don't all jump to it at once, but great topic. Great. Um, okay. So another case that we thought we would flag is um, Texas versus United States, which is the latest potential Obamacare case um, on its way, again, potentially to the Supreme Court. So this is a case um, that involved a Fifth Circuit opinion uh, 
issued in December. And actually, maybe let me give a little bit of background here. So back in 2017, the Republican-controlled Congress, lacking the votes to actually repeal Obamacare, uh, zeroed out the penalty that the law initially included for failing to acquire health insurance. Um, so recall that in NFIB versus Sebelius, which was the first big constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act, the Chief Justice saved Obamacare by declaring that the penalty for failing to comport with the individual mandate was a tax, right? So even though the law exceeded Congress's Commerce Clause power, uh, the law could still be saved as an exercise of Congress's power to tax. Um, so after the GOP-controlled Congress made the penalty zero, some enterprising red state attorneys general filed a lawsuit arguing that because the whole thing had been upheld on this tax theory, the fact that there was no longer a meaningful tax meant that the whole program was unconstitutional. Um, so these AGs who were then joined by the Trump administration, one in the district court uh, and then one in the Fifth Circuit, which agreed with the district court that the law was unconstitutional, but remanded for the district court to decide whether some of it could be saved under a severability analysis. Um, so there are lots of problems with the Fifth Circuit opinion, as there were with the district court opinion, um, but we can tackle those in due course. I think right now the big question is whether the Supreme Court might hear the case this term. Uh, I assumed they would have no interest in doing so. Um, so some of the st some states with Democratic AGs and also the House uh, have intervened in the case, and they filed a cert petition. Um, combined with a motion asking the court to expedite its consideration of the petition. Um, and I thought the court would just let this play out in sort of the ordinary course, but in fact asked for a response by Friday, the day that we are recording. So the justices have a conference today. They won't be able to consider, I don't think, um, this case today, but potentially a week from today uh, when they have another conference, that's on Friday the 17th. So I think at least in theory, if they wanted to, they could hear, because there aren't enough big high-profile cases this term, another big challenge to Obamacare um, during the 2019 term. So, you know, in either the next episode or the one after, we all know for sure what they're going to do on that. But flagging that it's in the pipeline. Um, okay, so then I mentioned that they are conferencing um, a bunch of, so they're considering taking a bunch of other cases today. And two cases that actually are scheduled for today's conference um, are two post-Masterpiece Cake Shop cases on LGBT equality, religious objections, sort of these kind of um, collision of liberty and equality questions that the court largely sidestepped in Masterpiece largely, Cake Shop. totally okay. sidestepped. sidestepped. Was able to sidestep. Um, so one of these cases looks a lot like Masterpiece Cake Shop, right? Arlene's Flowers versus Washington. This uh, is another wedding vendor case, right? In Masterpiece Cake Shop, we were talking about a baker. Here we're talking about a floral designer uh, who argues that her First Amendment rights to free exercise and free speech uh, are undermined um, by a state requirement that she take part in and custom create floral uh, arrangements celebrating well, same-sex weddings. Well, it's, a, it's not a law about same-sex weddings. It's a standard public accommodations of law course. that requires anyone doing business in the public to do business with all comers, like, and not discriminate yeah. on the basis of race, sex, religion, re and sexual orientation. Right. And that's and that's important. It's a state public accommodations law. So too is the law at issue in Colorado. So these are not actually sort of constitutional principles mm -hmm. in exact conflict, right? It's not as though a constitutional right to these services is being asserted on the part of right. the same-sex couples. There's a state public accommodations law um, that requires, right, sort of all comers be served equally. Um, the same-sex couple at issue in this case, as was the case in uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, was denied service, and, uh, and um, the law, the lower courts in both cases found um, that the state law required service to be provided on an equal basis. Um, and so these are 
First Amendment arguments against the enforcement of these laws, mm-hmm. right, against these uh, vendors. Um, this case was actually before the court once before. The court GVR'd, right, granted, vacated, remanded, sent back down to the Washington court. In courts, light of In light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Lo and behold, Washington uh, adhered to its earlier determination. I said what I said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and cases um, back before the court. Um, you know, I don't know, as we said, the court sidestepped the big questions in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, largely by identifying uh, what it believed to be indications of anti-religious animus on the part of some Colorado administrators who had been involved in the, you know, sort of state-level adjudication of these claims. I don't know. There may be a sort of analogous off-ramp in this case. Um, I'm not sure. They could. I could see them taking it up and once again sort of uh, avoiding the big questions. Remember, Masterpiece what? Cake Shop 2 was a 7-2 and not a 5-4 decision. It right? was Kagan a 7-2. and Breyer wrote separately but did join in the ultimate uh, But I mean, I think the, the linchpin there was Justice Kennedy who was at great pains to preserve the legacy he created with Lawrence, Windsor, Obergefell and did not want – any part of this because he also had written a number of decisions in favor of religious liberty and he relied on one of them, Church of Lukumi, extensively in Masterpiece Cake Shop. So um, I think the real question here is what does the departure of Justice Kennedy mean for how the court is feeling and its appetite for these kinds of cases? Absolutely. Well, so there's also another case in addition to Arlene's Flowers and this one involves a Catholic social services agency that places children for adoption, and it had a contract with the city of Philadelphia, and the city revoked its contract when it was determined that the social services agency was not placing children with same-sex couples as foster parents. So again, same kind of question about this collision of religious liberty and LGBTQ equality here. And so these cases, I believe, are being considered in tandem. They raise very similar questions. And again, we will see what happens. Yeah, but considered in tandem is interesting. I mean, I hope that the court does not do what it has seemed sort of oddly inclined to do this term, which is to combine cases that raise broadly similar questions. But are actually that, quite different. are actually quite distinct yeah. and should not be considered together. And so, um, you know, we've talked about this in the Title VII cases. Yes. That's the case with the three distinct presidential tax request cases. Yeah. And I hope the court does not do the same thing here. Well, I mean, there is an interest in judicial economy, but um, there, like these cases are broadly similar. But again, something very different about the speech elements of a case involving what could be considered artistic expression and this case, which is about the placement of children in foster foster care. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so is that it on breaking constitutional news? Well, there is some breaking news about an unwritten constitution that we could probably talk (laughs) a little bit about. Constitution are we talking about? So across the pond, Mm. our friends in Britain are embroiled in what I think could rightly be described as a constitutional crisis. Um, The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a.k.a. Meghan and Harry, have issued a statement saying that they are planning to step down or step back as senior royals in the royal family and seek a new role, one that will allow them to pursue financial independence of the British crown and to live um, transatlantically in North America and in the UK. And this has set off like a huge maelstrom of activity in Britain. But I'm not, I don't know why everyone is so surprised. They have been signaling for quite a long time that they are ready to do something like this. It's no secret that they have been absolutely dismayed by what has been, I think, the unfair and often 
quasi-racist, fully racist treatment of the Duchess of Sussex by the British tabloid press. Um, And they've signaled that very clearly. They've spoken about it openly. They filed a lawsuit against the tabloids. And they've received no support from the royal family on these fronts. And they seem to want to do their work. They have found lots of open avenues in other places and welcoming arms. Justin Trudeau wants them to hang out in Canada on a long-term basis, it's not surprising that they would extract themselves from this institution that really seems to be inhospitable and inhospitable in some really particularly awful ways. So why this assumption that Canada is their likely? So they mentioned North America. Like, why are they not? I mean, are they considering, like, is New York City a possibility? Could I mean, Megan, I'm saving a mat at Yoga Moda for you. (laughs) Do you actually go to Yoga Moda? I have gone to Yoga Moda. I might go after we do this podcast. You want to go? Um, I will go. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's they said North YouTube. America. Yeah, okay. They have lots of things they could do in North America. Obviously, she's from L.A. They could go to L.A. Um, I think Canada seems safest right mm. now because it's still a Commonwealth mm-hmm. country and it doesn't represent such a seismic break mm-hmm. with the royal family. Um, and previous royals have gone to Canada. So Princess Louise, who was a daughter of Queen Victoria, was the wife of the Governor General of Canada. Her husband was the Duke of Argyll, and they went to North America, and he was the the governor. The Duke of what? Argyll. Argyll. And he was. Dear listeners, I should say, this is literally (laughs) only about one level deep on Professor Murray's Royals expertise, like it goes way deeper than this. I am multi-talented. I'm not just. <laughs> See, like, I know this, but I'm, I'm not sure all our listeners do, and I'm glad you're giving them a little glimpse. Well, I mean, the second podcast that we launch is going to be full royals you're all have the to time. Find a co-host for that. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, at least I don't know. Me. I'm not going to speak for Lee and Jamie. <laughs> I'm going to be useless on that podcast, but I think you should think about doing. It. Shop the Sherwin Williams four day super sale and get forty percent off paints and stains from June seventh through the tenth, with prices starting at twenty nine thirty nine. It's the perfect time to transform your space with color. Whether you're looking to revamp your bedroom, living room, or home office, we have you covered with bold hues, soothing neutrals, and everything in between. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 
Thinking. All right. So I think Sussexit, as it's called, um, is probably an interesting bit of unwritten constitutional law use. I love it. I think we found a totally legitimate jurisdictional hook for that (laughs) segment. Um, Okay. So um, we've got a big sitting coming up in January. Um, What are we looking at? So January is the hardest month. I hate January because it's no longer the holidays. It's not the festive season. You're literally in the middle of winter. It's just yawning before you. It's awful. And happily, SCOTUS feels your pain because it's slated a number of reasonably interesting cases for January. Um, I, I don't disagree. There are some that are they're, they're reasonably interesting. I will say— It's not a blockbuster no, setting. and it is—this term is so packed with huge cases, and it also just feels like the world is on fire more broadly, right? Like, the impeachment trial is starting probably next week. Australia is on fire, literally. We're um, having a war. Or this at least intense confrontation with Iran right now. Mm. The court is poised to decide the future of the legal protection for abortion, the president's susceptibility to some sorts of legal process. Um, all of that is happening right now. And I actually find something comforting in the court hearing a series of relatively low-octane cases in the month of this January. This is a chamomile tea sitting. Exactly. It actually is. <laughs> Sleepy time sitting. <laughs> um, okay. So, well, so I want to preview a couple of cases cool. that – I think readers may gloss over because they are not really sexy, but they're fashiony if you really dig into them. So I have been obviously preoccupied with whether Chief Justice Roberts is going to take a leaf out of Chief Justice Rehnquist's impeachment playbook and go full-on SCOTUS version Billy Porter at the impeachment trial. I don't know how this will wind up, but I think he's signaling something to us with slating these two cases for the January sitting. So these two cases are about the ins and outs of the fashion world. So the first case is Lucky Brand Dungarees versus Marcel Fashion Group. And the second is called Romag Fasteners versus Fossil. And at first blush, they present some very dry issues of law, but they have large implications for the world of fashion. So let me go into Romag Fasteners versus Fossil. It's a trademark infringement case. Romag Fasteners is this family-owned business that has patented the magnetic fastener that you see used in many purses and wallets and other accessories. Fossil, as you know, is a company that makes handbags, watches, other accessories. They contracted with Romag um, to have Fossil's Chinese manufacturer purchase these metal magnetic fasteners from Romag's Chinese licensee. But interestingly, when the Romag folks did a casual stroll in a Macy's department store, they came across some fossil handbags with counterfeit magnetic fasteners. So they sued Fossil for trademark infringement under the Lanham Act. And they prevailed in a jury trial in which the jury recommended an award of about $90,000 of Fossil's profits under an unjust enrichment theory and an award of about, wait for it, $6.7 million of profits to deter future trademark infringement. And so it then went to a bench trial to consider the jury's recommendations, and the district court held that under extant precedent, an award of profits for a violation of Section 1125A of the Lanham Act requires that the defendant acted willfully on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit affirmed. So 
The issue before the court here is really an issue of statutory interpretation, whether the Lanham Act requires the defendant's willful infringement as a condition for dam a damages award under Section 1125A. And Romag argues that the express language of Section 1117 of the Act, which states that profit awards are available subject in all cases to principles of equity for, among other things, a violation under Section 1125A or D of this title or a willful violation under Section 1125C of this title, um, explicitly makes clear that while there is a requirement of a willful violation um, for a profits award under Section 1125C, there is no similar requirement under Section 1125A, which is its claim. Contrast this with Fossil's argument, which focuses on the legislative history. It argues that the cause of action for trademark infringement historically obligated infringers to disgorge profits only when the plaintiff proved that there had been willful conduct. And most agree that the Lanham Act was enacted with that history in mind and that the references to principles of equity require the courts to interpret the limited language of the act in light of these pre-existing judicial understandings of responsibility. And um, Romag is arguing that it's not as cut and dried as all of that, but Fossil actually has a very um, high-profile amicus on its side. Stanford law professor Mark Lemley has turned in a powerhouse amicus brief that weighs in in favor of Fossil and lays out this very long and detailed history around the Lanham Act. So stay tuned if you care about how your purse it closes and whether that magnetic fastener is counterfeit or not. And I would say stay tuned for the argument because Lisa Blatt and Neil Katyal are the lawyers who I think will be arguing the case and... Uh, they're both excellent. Who are they arguing for? Oh, like who's on what side? So Lisa is um, Romag's Romag. lawyer and Neil Katyal is arguing for Fossil. So big guns on both sides. Definitely. Like, bet the company litigation. Um, there's also another fashion-ish case, Lucky Brand Dungarees versus Marcel Fashion Group. And this caught my eye because I love Lucky Brand Dungarees. Like they're the only jeans I've ever found to fit me. <laughs> And so we might think of this case as dueling shamrocks because Lucky Brand Dungarees makes jeans and other clothing. And on the fly of their jeans, they have this cheeky Lucky You tag that's sewn into the zipper placket. Marcel also makes apparel. And like Lucky Brand, it owns a number of various trademarks related to the term Lucky. And so the litigation in this case began between the two parties in 2001 when Marcel sued Lucky Brand for infringing its Get Lucky trademark. And let me just stop here and say, if you are going to risk the company and risk a trademark liability suit, it should be for using Get Lucky <laughs> as your tagline. Like, that's the only— It's worth a little risk. It's <laughs> worth the risk. So— Props to you all. Um, so the litigation between the parties begins in 2001 when Marcel sues Lucky for infringing the Get Lucky trademark. It ends in a settlement. Then in 2005, there's a second lawsuit when Lucky sues Marcel based on a license Marcel had issued for its use of the Get Lucky mark. And Marcel counterclaims that tra a, tra a trademark infringement claim and asserts that Lucky had violated the prior settlement agreement from the 2001 suit. Lucky moved to dismiss, arguing that, among other things, that there had been a release covering these new counterclaims. The district court denied the motion to dismiss as premature, and in its answer, Lucky raised the release of those claims as an affirmative defense. It did not raise the release defense again in the 2005 action. The case went to trial, the jury rendered a verdict in favor of Marcel on the counterclaim, and the court entered an injunction against Lucky. Lucky never appealed that 2005 judgment. Still with me. 
Now, fast forward to 2011, Marcel again files a lawsuit, the current lawsuit, which claims that Lucky's continued use of certain trademarks violates the injunction that had been entered in the 2005 lawsuit. Lucky does not raise the release as a defense in its answer to the 2011 complaint or in its initial summary judgment motion. Instead, it moves for summary judgment on the ground that Marcel's claims are barred by claim preclusion, which prevents the relitigation between two parties of claims that were or could have been resolved in a prior lawsuit. The district court agrees, the Second Circuit reverses and then remands, reasoning that the alleged infringement at issue occurred after judgment in the 2005 action was entered, and so Marcel couldn't have raised those claims earlier. Still with me. Now on remand, Marcel has amended its complaint, Lucky has moved to dismiss, and it's now arguing that Marcel's claims were barred by the release, the release that it has not mentioned <laughs> since its answer in the 2005 case. So the question here is really a claim preclusion question, like a race judicata, standard civil procedure question, um, whether when a plaintiff asserts new claims, do federal preclusion principles bar the defendant from raising defenses that were not actually litigated and resolved in any prior case between the parties? So the justices have to decide whether the release defense satisfies the same claim requirement as the Second Circuit concluded it did precluding Lucky from raising these defenses in the 2011 suit. So super dry, but also kind of fashion-y and fun. And RBG will love this. She case. will totally love <laughs> this. this. Like um, exactly in her wheel. If you did not know this, RBG is a total expert in civil procedure. She spent a bunch of time in Sweden working on Swedish civil procedure. Comparative civil procedure, like in her 20s. Yeah, She's no. all in yeah, on this. Yeah. And I bet she has some lucky jeans in her closet. And she's obviously a fashion icon. Obviously. You know? And so this is this is her moment. I'm just here for the jeans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about another case that's also on deck for the January sitting, and that is Kelly versus United States. So anyone who was living in the New York area in 2013 um, – and I'm curious, Melissa, you weren't living in the New York area no, in 2013. No. But I'm curious how national a story this was. It was huge here. So basically the line – Time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee was like the most famous line of the year 2013. So did this story did this story penetrate like the West Coast? It did, mostly because I think the Bay Area is like New York City and New Jersey linked by bridges. So, so bridge so, drama is something you all can relate yeah, to. Well, can we? <laughs> Do we? Um, our bridges are a total nightmare. Okay. So yes. Yes. All right. So so for folks who who, who either sort of hazily remember this. I kind of had to get back up to speed, but then it sort of – it all came back to me. Um, Flooding or, back. <laughs> don't remember it at all. So the events at issue in this case involve the George Washington Bridge. So that is a bridge that looms over northern Manhattan. It connects New York City to New Jersey. It has 12 lanes of traffic. It is the busiest bridge in the world. It's a beast. Um, and on the first day of school in September of 2013, with no advance warning, commuters from New Jersey to New York had a rude awakening. So normally, of the 12 lanes on the GW Bridge, nine feed from a bunch of different highways that run through New Jersey, uh, including I-95, um, and the other three of 12 feed to the bridge from the streets of a town called Fort Lee, New Jersey. Uh, but on this lovely fall day, Fort Lee's usual three lanes were reduced to one lane. <laughs> so the other 11 were flowing from I-95 and these other interstates, just one lane from Fort Lee. And this led to total gridlock in the streets of Fort Lee. So kids were stranded on their way to the first day of school paramedics were getting out to walk to respond to emergency calls. There was absolute chaos. Nothing had been seen like it since September 11th, and people were confused and scared, and no one understood why this was happening. Dun, oh, dun, dun. Right. <laughs> so who directed this re, sort of reallocation of lanes and why? So um, 
an entity that is called the Port Authority uh, is central to this story. So the Port Authority is this odd bi-state agency that is that was created by a congressionally approved interstate compact between New York and New Jersey. So it manages the bridges and tunnels between New York and New Jersey. Um, so the directive to change the lane configuration had come from three people. Um, David Wildstein, who is uh, then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's chief of staff, Bridget Kelly, who is the deputy chief of staff, and Bill Baroni, who is the deputy executive director of the Port Authority and the most senior New Jersey official. So again, it's this bi-state entity. The executive director comes from New York. The deputy executive director comes from New Jersey. But the way the briefs describe this configuration, they're essentially co-equal heads of the Port Authority, one from each state. Um, so these three told career officials at the Port Authority that they needed to change the lane configuration in order to conduct a traffic study. And that is a story that they initially told publicly. But a great deal of evidence quickly emerged suggesting, and the jury in these cases uh, presumably found, that the reason that they had implemented this change was that Fort Lee's mayor had declined to endorse Governor Chris Christie for re-election, and members of Christie's inner circle wanted to punish him for that. Right, <laughs> so, so wait, wait, time out. Now we got to change the name of this case from Kelly versus United States to Petty versus United States because this is so petty. <laughs> it is so petty. And that is actually like the briefs don't deny that, right? Petty, <laughs> insensitive, ill-advised, right? Like the lawyers for these two, Baroni and Kelly, seem to admit all of that. But the question is, was it also criminal, right? Um, <laughs> so like, we're totally petty. But are we in orange jumpsuits? <laughs> are we criminally petty, right? Like in some ways that is the best distillation of the question at the heart of this case. Um, so as this scheme kind of comes to light, all of these three folks lie repeatedly and publicly, uh, including to government officials, uh, that this was all about a traffic study. And at the same time, they are engaging in lots of communications that later come out that make clear this was a cover, right? So Baroni testifies before the state assembly that two police officers requested this And they're doing this all this over email. Email, text messages. Yeah, no, uh, definitely – ill-advised. Um, so um, eventually all three of these officials are fired and they are subsequently criminally charged. So Wildstein quickly takes a guilty plea. He cooperates in the prosecution of Kelly and Baroni. Um, so both they, they, they go to trial and both Kelly and Baroni are – they're each convicted basically on uh, wire fraud and fr fraud on federally funded programs and related conspiracy charges. Mm -hmm. um, they're sentenced to 18 months and 24 months, respectively. The Third Circuit affirms for the most part, uh, but they both remain out pending the outcome of their um, appeals before the court. That's nice. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Just going to put that out yeah. there. So, okay. So what was the fraud exactly, right? So, again, it's wire fraud and then fraud on federally funded programs. But how do the prosecutors describe the content of the fraud? The government basically argues that the fraud consisted of the lies they told about a fake traffic study and then the attached hijacking of Port Authority resources. So, in particular, the labor of Port Authority employees who were pressed into service to execute and conceal the scheme and then the actual material costs associated with doing it, right? So they had to hire a different toll operator because of this reallocation. And they actually required Port Authority staff members to, you know, try to drum up this kind of after-the-fact study to justify, right, this thing, you know, ex post. It's never the crime. Done. It's the cover-up. It is, yeah. I mean, here it is kind of both. And they argue, and they have very good lawyers and they filed very good briefs, that the costs, these like labor costs of a couple mm -hmm. of staff members are so trivial. We're talking about, you know, two or five or $7,000 in the aggregate um, that, you know, it is grossly disproportionate to attach these kinds of federal criminal penalties to, to these acts and to sort of to call that the kind of harm to the government. Um, anyway, they actually did dispute some of these facts at trial. But here, as I said, this kind of 
the, the Callie's brief actually suggests this may all have been petty, insensitive, ill-advised, um, but basically rests their argument on this very broad claim that the prosecution here represented the criminalization of ordinary politics, that they may have been acting to punish a mayor for his refusal to offer political support, but politicians act out of mixed motives or purely political motives all the time, and you cannot criminalize that without criminalizing all of politics. That is the argument they are making. And this is a case that has been kind of floating around impeachment debates, including yeah. conversations that you and I have had on, in, ABC. on ABC, including with Chris Christie, who yes. obviously is a central player in this case. The and was Kelly the one case. who raised McDonald when yes. we so, talked about it. And, and, and I think that a lot of the president's defenders were making the argument that the McDonald case in some ways foreclosed yeah. predicating impeachment on this quid pro quo where one of the, the sort of official acts that the president was, a was promising was a White House, House meeting. Yes. Because there are a bunch of things that the governor in this Virginia case um, had provided or provided to this campaign donor, um, Johnny Williams, um, in exchange for, you know, cash gifts and loans. Yeah. and kind of meetings with Virginia governor, government officials were kind of central to the official acts that he was charged with taking in violation of law and that the Supreme Court found were not sufficiently official, official. Uh, to justify liability under the criminal statutes. Um, and so there's this exporting of that logic to the impeachment context. And I think it got some traction. Um, you know, I, I do think it's part of the reason that the House didn't formally charge bribery because right. it was the bribery statute that contained the language official act that McDonnell was sort of vindicated through this narrow reading of the term official act. And so so it is all connected. And so so to go back to Kelly. Back to Kelly. Yeah. Back to petty versus the United States. <laughs> exactly. um, petty but not criminal. Or petty, petty but, but not also, cr- and also Or maybe. <laughs> like, um, and so, okay, so, so what else? The lawyers also pull in cases like the census citizenship case and Trump versus Hawaii, yeah. the travel ban case. Basically, the mixed they, motives. Well, and so they are arguing that on the logic of the courts below, so, so to take the census case for a second, that Wilbur Ross not only would have had his census question set aside because the official justification of, you know, protecting the Voting Rights Act was a pretext, but that he could have been prosecuted criminally for offering a pretextual justification to conceal his political motives. It is interesting that that despite the fact that the president's defenders have used similar logic in defending the president's conduct in the Ukraine affair, um, it is the, the DOJ, right, the Trump administration's Justice Department that is defending these prosecutions. Um, so they are arguing, no, these these prosecutions, um, you know, lo- there are lots of ways to cabin what happened here um, from the sort of range of conduct and maybe sometimes, you know, corrupt-ish political conduct that would not support, you know, criminal charges. Um, but there's just something that is, you know, I-, I think it's very possible that there's so much McDonald in this case. Yeah. And McDonnell, remember, didn't just win in the Supreme Court. He won unanimously in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court unanimously reversed his conviction or convictions. He'd been convicted, I think, a number of counts. Um, And um, I think it's possible that they could attract pretty broad support from the justices. And I just think there is something that is the kind of vision of the way (laughs) politics is done that is contained within these briefs that is not just transactional but but self-dealing as an mm-hmm. essential feature of it, an essential feature that the law cannot touch. I find it so depressing and so depressing that the Supreme Court might enshrine within the law these kinds of assumptions about the kind of ordinary behavior of political actors. Uh, it's just like so dispiriting and so cynical. And yet I think there's a decent chance that the court buys it. Petty wins. 
I, th- I mean, I, you know, again, I, I'm happy we're not really making predictions, but I feel like Petty is Petty going to wins. have a real shot in yeah. this case. All right, go Petty. All right, um, final case, Bab versus Wilkie. I'm going to be pretty brief about this. Um, so this is a, a case that I think is interesting by itself, but also because it is of a piece with a case we previewed earlier on an earlier episode, Comcast versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media, also known as the Byron Allen case. Um, The Byron Allen case, if you recall, involved a provision of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And the question there was whether a plaintiff, in order to present a claim, had to prove that racial discrimination was the but-for cause of the other party's refusal to contract, right? So whether you just had to show that racial discrimination was part of the rationale or whether it was the but-for cause um, of the rejection. Babb versus Wilkie raises a similar kind of question. So um, Babb versus Wilkie concerns the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which requires that federal agencies' personnel actions affecting employees who are at least 40 years of age shall be made free from any discrimination based on age. And the question here is whether a plaintiff who files suit under that provision must prove that the federal government's decision concerning their employment would have been different but for age discrimination, or whether the federal government is liable for age discrimination anytime it even considers an older worker's age. And I should note, I absolutely resent the use of the term older worker for anyone over the age of 40. So leaving that to the side. And we should say we are, we are, you and I are the older workers. We are older workers for this purpose. Yeah, we are the older workers. We aren't. Oh, guys, someday you too will be. They're millennials. (laughs) Um, So interestingly, it should be noted that this provision of the ADEA focuses on public sector employees. There had There's also a private sector provision, but in an earlier case from 2009, Gross versus FBL Financial Services, the court held that the private sector provision of the ADEA requires that plaintiffs show but for causation. And the VA is relying primarily on Gross as well as some other decisions, Nasser, Safeco versus Burr, for the proposition that in order to make out this claim, you must show that age discrimination was the but for cause of the decision. Uh, By contrast, Dr. Norris Babb, who is the petitioner here, she's a clinical pharmacist working at the Department of Veterans Affairs, claims that the fact that there are two separate provisions for federal employees and private sector employees is actually meaningful. Um, And she maintains that because the federal sector provision regulates how personnel decisions shall be made, that's the language, the entire process of hiring federal employees should be free from any age discrimination. So almost holding the federal government to a higher standard um, in terms of what it can do rather than the standard that's offered for private employers. And so she argues that the fact of the two different provisions means that whether or not the discrimination is determinative, she can present her cause of action. And her reading of the statutory language is supported, she says, by the historical context. And she notes specifically that this federal sector provision of the act was modeled on Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and that makes Title VII's meaning relevant. And with that in mind, Title VII's federal sector provision was intended to embody constitutional equal protection guarantees, and plaintiffs raising equal protection claims do not need to prove but for causation. So So further, both of these statutes echo the language of broadly worded executive orders that at the same time were intended to eradicate 
discrimination in the workplace. She's also relying on decisions of the EEOC and the Civil Service Commission, which previously had been responsible for enforcing both Title VII and the ADEA, and had long agreed that the federal government violates both statutes anytime it considers a prohibited characteristic, not just when discrimination is the animating factor. Um, so she's taking a very interesting statutory interpretation position, one that really relies on context, legislative history. And we, you know, we should just say, like, with executive order, there is a long tradition when we're talking about discrimination in federal employment of executive orders preceding statutory codification mm -hmm. of particular anti-discrimination principles. So the president doesn't issue EOs right. regulating private employers, but has long issued EOs pertaining to federal workers. Yes. And so they're relevant in this context. No, that's certainly true and certainly the case. Um, it's also worth noting that Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins gets another airing. It was first aired out and taken for a walk in that trio of Title VII cases heard earlier in the term. Um, but the VA objects to Babb's account of the historical context of the ADEA, and it focuses on Congress's response to the court's decision in Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins. In Pricewaterhouse, the court adopted this burden-shifting framework for cases in which employers are motivated in part by impermissible considerations and part by other reasons. Um, under that burden-shifting framework, plaintiffs have to first show that the protected characteristic was a motivating factor in the adverse employment decision, but then the burden shifts to the employer to show that they would have reached the same decision even without the discriminat discriminatory um, rationale. Two years after Price Waterhouse, Congress amended Title VII to clarify that employers could be liable any time a plaintiff's protected trait was a motivating factor for any employment practice. Um, and in Gross, that 2009 case that the VA is relying on here, the court concluded that Congress's explicit ex inclusion of motivating factor liability in Title VII, but not in the ADEA, supports their view that the ADEA does require but for causation and that this reasoning should apply here too. Right. So... I just want to point there out that there are a lot of similarities between this case and the Byron Allen case. They both concern federal anti-discrimination statutes. They both sort of suggest this trend toward requiring mm -hmm. plaintiffs to show but for causation um, in order to even make out their claims. So even to get them before the court, which is a real ratcheting yeah. up of the standard and perhaps limiting the opportunity for civil rights plaintiffs to get their claims into court. Yeah, and there are different statutes, obviously. Um, and so it's not at all required they stand or fall together. But I do think that if both of these plaintiffs lose, that does you know, send a message about the difficulty civil rights plaintiffs are going to have accessing courts and I think, I think that's purposeful. I mean, it, it is, I mean, there are two different statutes, one from 1866, one from the 1960s and 70s. They're both meant to, the, both of these cases are part of a narrowing of anti-discrimination. Potentially. Anti -discrimination. Right, potentially, potentially. But this is like, how, that's how you think they're coming out. Well, I mean, we'll I think... The fact that they're being litigated at all suggests a change in mood. Potentially, yeah. I mean, the one other thing I'll say about this case is that um, the plaintiffs invoke Chevron, right? You mentioned that the EEOC <laughs> has... Um, offered an interpretation that there is no requirement of but-for causation under the ADEA, at least the federal sector piece of it. Um, and the future of Chevron is not in any way directly implicated in this case, but I will be or watching. Or is it? Right? I mean, <laughs> any time at this, at this moment that Chevron arises in the Supreme Court, I think it's important to keep a close eye on the oral arguments and the opinions that emanate from the court because obviously some members are gunning for Chevron and not in this case, but it's coming. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, okay, so let's move on to court culture. 
wilding out on justice. So a lot of things were happening, um, and justices were seen in the wild. And so the first thing I want to sort of bring up is, um, again, this may be navel-gazing for some of you listeners out there, but for those of you who are interested in law school culture, one of the biggest events of the year happens when the AALS, the American Association of Law Schools, holds its annual meeting. There were a lot of fantastic panels, uh, many of them focused on the court and court culture. Uh, Kate and I were on a panel concerning reproductive rights and justice in law and politics. Kate was later on a panel of nine people on the future of and the And I think second. we lost about two people, so it was going to be even It was going to be like the, the biggest <laughs> panel ever on guns, right? And what was so surprising surprising to me is that you actually had four women on a panel about gun rights. Um, one of them wasn't able to come, but there are a lot of women on that panel. It's not typically a space where you see a lot of female scholars. And I think to the credit of um, uh, Daryl Miller and Joseph Bloker at, at Duke, they have really tried to encourage women to participate in this space, and, and I think they've been successful. So that was a terrific panel. Um, lots of stuff Lots of interesting things surfaced. Um, I will note that Randy Barnett at Georgetown Law, who's another big gun rights scholar, um, complained that it all seemed a little slanted to the gun control side. Uh, do you think that's true? Um, probably. You know, yeah. I, think, I, think, I think that that was in part due to some like late-breaking absences on yes. the panel. Yeah. Um, and um, and I do think that it wasn't a partisan. I mean, you were at the panel. It did not yeah. seem at all um, partisan. Now, you know, what were there sort of Second Amendment absolutists in the room, or maybe in the room, but not on the panel. And yeah. and I think that Randy had there a were point. some Second Amendment absolutists, I think, who asked some really interesting questions that the panel responded to. So I mean, eh, it's hard. I mean, pe- people's travel plans change. These panels, like I mean, we've talked about this. Like okay. I had to drop out of a panel because I was double booked. So things happen. Yeah. Also at the annual meeting was Justice Ginsburg, who was doing a kind of fireside chat with Vicki Jackson of Harvard. She, sp- she she told some stories that we've heard before about the challenges she faced as a young law student raising her daughter while her husband was receiving treatment for cancer. She also spoke about diversity in the professoriate, so of a piece with our conversation. Um, she mentioned my former colleague at Berkeley and her co-author and dear friend, Herma Hill Kay. Um, and she pronounced herself very well. And indeed, the Supreme Court recently released a statement saying that she was cancer-free. I am not the only one who's into Justice Ginsburg's stories. Um, People Magazine reported that Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez, known to us colloquially as J-Lo and A-Rod, asked RBG for marital advice. (laughs) I don't even under that conversation blows my mind. Like I'm just what, like how ima- they came. Yeah, to like all her, I could but- see is like Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers wearing like a huge fur coat and like. Can we so, just say she is glorious in that movie? She's, she's glorious in that movie. I made my husband rewind it. He was like, what's going on? I'm like, this is like let's like just a particular, watch this. Like, when she's yeah. dancing to oh Fiona God. Apple. <laughs> like, I was like, Wait, the fir- is that the first scene? That the she's first like, scene. Yeah. And oh. she's like 50 <laughs> years old. I'm like, look at this. She's amazing. She's incredible. But I just, what does that look like? She was like, I'm just going to ask Justice Ginsburg, like, what's your secret to a great marriage? <laughs> Like, what does that look like? And so Justice Ginsburg told them um, the secret to a great marriage is that it helps to be a little bit deaf to your partner. This is a line that she uses, and it's very good. It's a very good line. Um, I also got to see the justice on December 19th in Philly at her induction into the National Museum of American Jewish History's Hall of Fame. And Irene Carmon and Shana Kisnik, who wrote the Notorious RBG, which we have talked about here, were there giving her a tour of the Notorious RBG exhibit that they curated and that will be touring the United States. So now it is at Philadelphia at 
the National Museum of American Jewish History, and it goes on to Chicago, where it'll be for the spring and summer, and then back to New York for the fall. And I also told the justice about strict scrutiny. Okay, so what was the conversation? Tell us everything. I don't know that she knows a ton about podcasts Uh or or that she cared, (laughs) but I told her that we often talk about her, and I said I would send her a strict scrutiny sweatshirt, which I did. Do we have any indication that it was received? I got a very nice note saying that she was going to wear it to work out. Oh, my God. Like, we obviously need pictures of this, but I'm just not sure how we're going to make that happen. I don't know. I mean, send pics. Pics or it didn't happen. (laughs) Any RBG clerks listening? We would like a picture. Please, please, we'll send you t-shirts too. Sweatshirts, mugs, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) Any other news from the justices in the wild? Um, The only other thing we were going to flag was that um, Chase Boudin was recently sworn in as the new um, district attorney of San Francisco. He won this unlikely victory, right? He's a progressive, um, former public defender. Part of this wave of progressive of progressive defenders who have sought these top prosecutor jobs, and he won a sort of very close but ultimately decisive uh, win. So so Justice Sotomayor recorded a video statement that was played at his swearing-in ceremony. So in this video statement, um, she speaks about the challenges in her own life growing up in a public housing project in the Bronx, um, going on to this, you know, quite improbable career as the first Latina justice on the court. And she then related it to Boudin's own life and challenges. And um, as some of you know, when Chesa Boudin was 14 months old, his parents were arrested and imprisoned for their roles in the Weather Underground, and he was essentially raised by family friends. So this is what she said at his inauguration. Chesa, the difficulties you faced as a child, including that you did not read until age nine, are common among children of prisoners. You have lived the stigma of anger, shame, and guilt that so many such children in the criminal justice system experience. We are all safer when we uplift victims, hold everyone accountable for their actions, and do so with empathy and compassion. What do you think of that? So I have to say, I am not a fan of her having recorded and disseminated this video. Congratulations. It it feels like an error to me. Um, I don't think it's a grave error. To everyone? Like like the fact that every progressive prosecutor is going to want this kind of video statement? I just think that her congratulating him in a a one-on-one setting is fine. Obviously, you congratulate anyone you want. Um, But, you know, he's going to be now. He's this law enforcement official. He will have, you know, cases that could in some way end up before the court. I think it's the case that in San Francisco, the city attorney is Mm -hmm. always representing the city before the Supreme Court. But look, like – one of the biggest cases on the docket this term is Vance versus Trump, right? Like DAs sometimes are yeah. intimately involved in key disputes that end up before the Supreme Court. It does not seem to me impossible that that could happen with Chesa. And I think that his story is amazing and his campaign was amazing, but I don't think she should have recorded this video. So about like the fact of his particular role, I thought you were actually going to say that you thought I mean, it is kind of a mini statement about the collateral consequences of mass incarceration. And I think that's perfectly appropriate, actually, for her to say. I think she could have given a speech saying the same thing. And I actually don't – I have no trouble with with that dimension of it. It's more the sort of any perception of potential prejudgment in any case that could – Like going duck hunting with someone? I mean, look, I would not have recommended (laughs) that Justice Scalia do that with any potential litigant. Um, And I mean, I just – you know, I'm trying to imagine – 
Justice Kavanaugh recording some kind of congratulatory For Bill Barr, message, yeah. Right upon his confirmation. Yeah. Then yeah. obviously the, the United States mm-hmm. is the most frequent litigant before the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That is obviously different from the San Francisco district attorney. Yeah. Uh, and yet I think we would have been pretty troubled by that and I'm not sure why this is so different. So more to come. I, I think we just like fueled a, a recusal effort. <laughs> Whoops. I mean, again, it may not ever materialize. And certainly there's no requirement that any justice recuse in any particular case. Um, but I think it's probably best to avoid this stuff. Um, okay. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we are so grateful to Melody Rowell, our wonderful producer, Eddie Cooper, who did our music, everyone who helps us get this out there and into your ear holes. Um, many thanks to you, dear listeners, for all your feedback, the shout outs that you send our way. Um, the, oh, we the... gave out so many stickers at Double ALS. So thank you to all of you who came up to us and asked for stickers. We are only too happy to offer and them you out. Should, when you see us in the wild, like Melissa and I both give talks at law schools and so do Leah and Jamie. And Jamie does, you know, she's like a real lawyer. She's like out there in the world practicing law all the time. We all have stickers. We're starting to carry them with us. So please be shameless and ask us for stickers. We're happy to us. pass them out. Um, and important announcement, we hope we will see you in person in all your strict scrutiny gear when we take this show on the road for the first time. So we are going to be in Ann Arbor on Friday, January 17th. Yes, we are coming for you, Ann Arbor. We're coming. All right, so Leah convinced us all to come to Michigan in the middle of the winter. In January. <laughs> we love you that much, Leah. Um, <laughs> and the University of Michigan. We're very excited um, to see the ACS chapter who um, put together this live event. And um, join us if you can. And if not, make sure to listen to the show when it's out. Come see us in the wild later. All right, see you next time. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 